John has been my glorious host at uh, Berkeley. This is the last time we're bringing you, Richard, if you act out like this whenever you have a good time with us. Oh, yes, whenever I'm in public. Welcome back to the Law Talk podcast from the Hoover Institution, coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein U School of Law, a campus where speech is always free and usually intemperate. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter, co-founder of Kite and Key Media, and nevertheless snubbed by the Academy for my work in Barbie. And I am joined, as always, by the Lenny and Carl of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu. Visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Fellas, good to be back with you, although not back with you in the sense that you all are back with each other because you are both, you're not coming to us from the same room, but you are coming to us from the same general location because Richard is doing his annual traipse around northern california and i have to tell the audience just a little peek behind the curtain here uh, it's already been clear by the 10 minutes that preceded the start of the taping that california richard is a very different species from east coast richard I mean, you, you came in hot today i want to know what richard epstein on the mean streets of berkeley looks like i mean are you out there are you out there busking you know with a, a joint behind your ear what what, what is west coast richard John, maybe you should answer this because you've been in the presence of West Coast Richard recently. Yes, John, you answer that and describe my he's, new dynamic is, personality. Yeah, Rick, yeah listen, listen to him. Did you hear that? Just this is he's irrepressible, even more so than usual. He's all I can say is it's hard to imagine, but I think Richard is high on life. He's just <laughs> walking around as if a cornucopia of flowers surrounds him. He's trailing blessings for all left and right i've never seen him so happy and eager and open to the world i, I don't think the world can take much more of this we got to get him out of here i think only one week is enough i like grouchy cranky richard from new york city <laughs> really i think new charming richard is a much milder person uh i don't even know how to say it but i will say this uh being around john has added a little bit of bounce to my otherwise creaky um uh step and he's made me even more frivolous academically than i've ever been before we had a little discussion before the federal society chapter a large turnout i'm happy to say in which john chided my views on double jeopardy in the trump case as being clearly out of the mainstream and I thought that was the nicest compliment that he could possibly pay for me, even though it turns out on this occasion, John reverted to the mainstream, essentially forfeiting his role for equal billing on the notorious law talk show. So, John, what do you have to do to atone yourself? We will find out as we go further into the discussion as to whether or not we have not only a new Richard, but a new John. Well, let's see. I will get you guys into the, the topics of the day. And in keeping with the Sisyphean burden we've had on the show for the last eight or nine years. We have to start, of course, with Donald Trump, who, as per usual, has a bunch of legal controversies controversies orbiting him. Uh, so let me briefly start with the ballot access question. We have talked several times before about the challenge to Trump's candidacy under the 14th Amendment. Now that a few states have pulled him off the ballot, that question's going to the Supreme Court. You guys have both indicated 
in past episodes that you're skeptical of this. You're unpersuaded that Trump could be removed from the ballot on these grounds. And there seems to be a sort of soft consensus amongst court watchers that the Supreme Court is going to feel the same way and that Trump is going to be allowed on the ballot. So let me ask you this. Given both how controversial some of the court's recent rulings have been, and given the stakes here, because a lot of people in both parties now think we are wrestling with questions that are existential for the republic, uh, I have heard a number of pundits in the last few weeks say that they think it is uniquely important that the court's ruling here not be 6-3, and in some cases that it's really important that the court's ruling be unanimous. Um, John, I'll start with you. If you're Chief Justice Roberts, is this the thing you're taking into consideration? Are you trying to get the court to speak with one voice on these kinds of questions? First, a moment of uh, disclosure. I actually filed an amicus brief for the Claremont Institute in the case. And so I actually really dug into this disqualification issue. And I, I agree with you, Troy and the other pundits. I think the court's going to reverse Colorado. Uh, of course, uh, Roberts would love for the opinion to be unanimous, although I'm sure Roberts wishes every opinion was unanimous. Uh, but I don't think it's as important in this case as getting the right answer. I mean, for example, if you have three justices who are just dead set against reversal here, uh, as you may, as you may well uh, guess, I don't think it's worth the six justices. I hope are in the majority here to bend their opinion to accommodate them, uh, because I think the uh, constitutional interests are so strong uh, in making sure that states, you know, fifty states don't apply fifty different standards about who's an insurrectionist, and then start. Uh, peeling people off the ballots. Because one thing we should keep in mind is this is not just about the presidency. This is about every person who tries to hold office. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, this is just, and you'll start to see that members of the House, members of the Senate, people running for office, um, and so on. The other thing uh, I'd say about this question about unanimity versus is that I think uh, if you're Roberts, the longer term goal is to keep okay. the court as much as possible out of this election. And so, yeah, people might criticize a six to three court that overruled Colorado, but the result of that would just be to leave Trump on the ballot. And I think that'll be the more important thing to this court. And I think, you know, after the November elections, no one's going to remember what the vote in this case was. But what I think Roberts will hope is that the court stays out. The court is not the one who... Mm -hmm. guarantees Trump's loss, that that's up to the American people. And, and that ideally, I, I, could, I could imagine ideally the court says, oh, maybe Trump loses, but that was up to the electorate in November 2024 and wasn't the Supreme Court's job. Because the last point I'll make here is if the court agrees with Colorado, then it's effectively removing Trump from the ballot from all 50 states. Richard? Well, I don't think it's that disastrous. John, but I do think it's a very perilous situation. Um, I think Mr. Yu has become a sage in our own time. Uh, let me explain why. It's not only, if you get it unanimous, it could be middle of the road kind of an opinion. So suppose they said the unanimous opinion is it was not appropriate under these circumstances to remove uh, Mr. Trump from the ballot because you have to wait until he's received these a Republican nomination in order to be able to do that. That would be the worst possible ruling that you could have. It would be a short-term fix, but it would solve nothing. 
Uh, so what you really need to do is to have it very emphatic uh, that this is just not the place for any state to parlay the confusion of January 6th into a kind of a disqualification event, even though everything I know about the 14th Amendment in Section 3 goes exactly in the opposite way. I also heard, and Michael McConnell mentioned to me to this, and I think it's actually a very powerful point. Let's suppose they moved him from the ballot. What the Republican Party should then do is cancel the primary and say, we're going to have a kind of a private caucus situation, which we're entitled to do, and we will make the situation the way in which we want it, wholly without the intervention of the Secretary of State. And I think that that's something that should be do. The next thing I think that we ought to say is this movement started back in August or even earlier, and there were many great expectations that were smashed. Uh, we're left with uh, no Ron DeSantis, uh, no Vive Amaswamaswabi, and so forth. What really happened is at this point, it's over. I mean, Trump has won the nomination. Nikki Haley, I think, is uh, an admirable person, but I think at this point trying to fight a pointless rearguard action is mistaken. All the other candidates have essentially withdrawn and have endorsed Trump. Uh, he is going to be the party act of name. His now strange role is to be a unifier, and he has actually tried in some sense to do it. And the good public news, I think, for him is that uh, Wall Street is seeming to warm to Trump and has every reason to warm to Trump because the policies of Mr. Biden are amongst the most ruinous to financial markets in the history of Western civilization. And so Trump is going to come forward as a savior. I don't know whether he can win. He has so many personal disabilities and he has the rare talent whenever he's ahead uh, to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory by saying something inane, stupid, and, and gratuitous. But on the legal issue, John is right. And the correct answer, the simplest solution, I think, is to say for the purposes of Section 3, he is not an officer of the United States. He is the person who appoints officers. And even though he has an executive office, uh, the statute doesn't apply to him. That's the clean kill. There are other kills that I think are appropriate, but I would not want this case to turn on the question. Well, we reviewed all the record and we think, well, the evidence tends to tilt in favor of there not being a uh, an insurrection. At that point, you open it up for all sorts of state court judges to disagree. So I want a clean kill on a point of law. Um, I think the Democrats are kind of ironic when they say he's the greatest threat to democracy we've ever seen. And at the same time, they're trying to pull a rather preposterous argument out of the head in order to sideline him from the election. So um, however bad his conduct is in certain kind of tactical, strategics and public voicing ways uh, to say that the Democrats have been exemplary in this case. I mean, I can't think I mean, I'm just a Paul, for example, at the way that somebody like Michael Ludig uh, has put himself on the front of this campaign. Everything he says, I think, is dangerous, foolish, and harmful to the republic. So, of course, the other big legal question surrounding Donald Trump right now is this argument about presidential immunity that his team is currently litigating. The argument here being that he should not be subject to criminal charges based on actions taken when he was serving as president. And the part of this argument, of course, that got the most attention is when one of his lawyers was faced with the hypothetical of could a president be prosecuted if he dispatched a SEAL team to assassinate one of his political yeah. rivals? And Trump's lawyers had sort of painted themselves into this corner where they had to say, well, no, at least not until after he was impeached for that. As a, as a side note, this seems like an argument you should not be making when you are one of the political rivals. But this sort of extreme example 
is analytically a, a bit of a shame because everybody is now focused on this like crazy edge case. So let's attempt to recenter this question on the actual principle. Okay. Richard, I'll start with you. Is it obvious okay. to you what the boundaries of presidential immunity are? And where does our understanding of those standards come from? Okay, look, I mean, uh, the formidable case in this particular area is from 1959, and it was a very prudent Judge John Marshall Holland decision in a case called Bar v. Mateo, not our current bar, but a different guy, involving a defamation suit when some public official spoke out against some uh, particular person in society at large. And he said that you've got an absolute immunity within the outer perimeter of your duties. Now, where did he get this term? Well, you look at the Constitution, and you can't find the word outer in the text, nor can you find the word perimeter. What it is is it's an inference from the way in which we understand uh, the principle of separation of powers, that if we constantly having one branch of government checking over another branch of government, what happens is the entire system will come to a halt. And John made just this point before when he talked about insurrection. He says, if you allow it here, you're going to see it everywhere, every time by everybody, uh, because uh, whenever you find two people who are disputing an election dispute, uh, you can find that this is an insurrection under the definition, very broad definition they used in Colorado. And so you create the judicial doctrine. Well, one of the things that happens when you create a judicial doctrine, you could also create judicial exceptions to a judicial doctrine. And one of the exceptions that you could put to that doctrine is you say, if anybody wishes to commit a crime of murder, that is not within the outer perimeter of his duties. Uh, there's nothing about the ends that allow him to do that and nothing about the means that allow it to do him. And so you use a test similar to that, whether or not something arises out of an in the course of employment and a murder done by somebody in the course of employment is not going to be charged uh, to the employer. It's going to be his own particular act. And I think that's the best way to do it is to say we crafted this doctrine. We had very good reasons when the reasons sit, we basically craft exceptions to it. The second answer you could give is, you know, you guys underestimate the political process. And they didn't put this falsely. Now, you get a president who's going to murder. What's going to happen is you're going to have an impeachment hearing that is going to begin very quickly and it's going to end very ingloriously. So you're not waiting very long. And second, it may well be that within the administrative system, there are things that you could do to limit the power of the president uh, by suspending him in some way that would stop it. That's also brand new terra incognita, but it might work. But between the two arguments, it seems to me pretty clear that what you have to do is to say that the exception can't prove the rule. But in this case, the right answer why Trump should lose on the immunity question is he's not acting as a president in any way, shape or form with respect to his duties when he's trying to contest the outcome of an election to which is he a participant. And I think everybody on the D.C. Circuit will accept that particular argument. So I think it's toast. John and I will have later a spirited debate about double jeopardy. Uh, but I think on the question of presidential immunity, the argument is a, lunar, a loser. And the argument should be a loser. But you don't want to basically have crazy hypotheticals detract you. Those hypotheticals can be dealt with by a principle of necessity. Whenever a general principle is too broad and creates impossible situations, if the rule is created by judicial decision, the exception can be created by judicial systems as well. John, any daylight between the position that Richard articulated there and yours? Uh, I don't think presidents have any immunity from criminal prosecution by the federal government. I'm not sure whether Richard thinks so. I agree. I, we agree on the outcome, I think, which is 
if immunity exists or not, uh, any claim of immunity would not cover January 6th anyway, because I think on the facts, he's acting as a candidate there and not the president. And the DC Circuit, in a very, I thought, a very good opinion about the uh, civil lawsuit that's being brought by Capitol Police officers, uh, made clear that uh, you know any constitutional protections for a president don't extend to the things the president does as a candidate for office. Uh, by definition, anything you're doing as a candidate for office is not actual, actually an exercise of official powers of president. And uh, Troy, I'm sure you crossed came across this issue many times in the White House when uh, you know you wanted to give out jelly beans to donors, official White House jelly beans to donors to the campaign for the president's reelection. But right there's a there's a lot of staff actually in the White House and the Justice Department who try to police that line to make sure that the president, when they're running for office, doesn't engage in political activity. For example, if they fly somewhere to give a speech for purely political purposes, uh, the president, of course, is going to fly in Air Force One, is still going to have their Secret Service detail, but they have to pay for it. The government doesn't pay for it. So there's there's lots of rules like that to guard that line. Mm-hmm. But I, I would say, you know, Richard picked this defamation case, which I have to confess, um, I don't really teach. I think the main case, the closest case is a case called Nixon versus Fitzgerald from 1982. Uh, that's a case where the court said that the president does have absolute immunity, but only for uh, lawsuits for damages by private people, you know, by private citizens. And the court there said, gave a lot of the reasons that Richard gave, you know, you don't want to have a president deluge with lawsuits. You don't want to have a president second guessing everything they do because they might be sued once they leave office. But I think the implication of that case is that the only reason this is exceptional is because generally presidents don't have absolute immunity. And this, this is what Richard and I argued about when we had, uh, he, he and I did a little debate uh, at the Federal Society at Berkeley this week. Uh, Richard did, did Richard did generate a large turnout. Can I just say, uh, <laughs> the last time Richard did a Federal Society event at Berkeley two years ago, yes, uh, was supposed to talk about the administrative state, but he was also required to wear an N95 mask. And in the first 30 seconds, Richard said, I can't breathe in this thing and ripped the mask <laughs> off. Uh, and uh, we have all this on tape. This is a great, one of the great events of Berkeley law history. Um, and then proceeded to invade against mask requirements for the next 30 minutes. I don't think he mentioned the administrative state in his talk. But then the great thing was several of the students in the audience emailed me and the dean saying that they were physically harmed by Richard because he took the mask off. I have to note, no, nobody left the lecture room after Richard took the mask off. Um, and then Google took down our video of the whole event because Richard was allegedly spreading disinformation about masks. And so the university, we had to get the university council involved and we had to threaten to sue Google. And eventually Richard was allowed back onto YouTube where all 800 people who've looked at that video could watch him. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but anyway, to just to, <laughs> to wrap up, yeah, you know, during this debate, I, I think the more interesting claim that Richard raised, which I also disagreed with, I mean, I just don't think there's any evidence that the president was thought to have absolute immunity from criminal prosecution. It's not like, we could this last point, there's a distinction here that's important. There's a difference between how to think about the Manhattan DA and the uh, Fulton County DA in Georgia, 
prosecuting Trump for things he did as president and uh, the special counsel. Because if the Supreme Court were to say there's some kind of immunity uh, for federal officers from state prosecution, that could solve the, you know, Richard's concern about deluge of lawsuits. If it's just the federal government that's allowed to prosecute Trump, then you really only have, you know, one main prosecution. And I think that's what we're going to have. I mean, I think the special counsel's indictment of Trump for January 6th is really the central and fundamental lawsuit. I don't think he's going to get immunity for that, although he may succeed and may, this may be his main plan. He may succeed in delaying any kind of trial past the November election by fighting this immunity issue all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, I think it's a slightly different from that. I do believe that the absolute immunity doctrine was created in the Fitzgerald case uh, by judicial fiat, but that's not the only time it's happened. Uh, there are all sorts of judges who harm people with rulings that are wrong, and none of them are allowed to sue in civil court. There is a procedure to discipline them through the Bar Association and through the Judicial Society, and I think that's the proper situation because of the proliferation of suits. Um, one of the things that I think would be truly dangerous is you get somebody who essentially uh, commits what you would call a really terrible statement, falsehoods about somebody else that would be perjury if done by an ordinary citizen. Those cases you don't do the exception to. They're too numerous. The thing you worry about is exactly the horrible that was put forward in the hypothetical which is the use of force by the president to silence a political rival. And that was what's going on. So in the other cases, I, I think that the danger of allowing criminal prosecutions while he's still in office, I don't care for these purposes what happens after he's in office, is that he could then be distracted by a thousand criminal lawsuits brought by a thousand federal DAs who think that they're somehow or other independent of what had happened. And I think that that is generally going to be regarded as totally intolerable. This is not a parliamentary system. In a parliamentary system, the rule has always been if the prime minister loses a vote of confidence, the prime minister will be forced to resign because he's in parliament. We have a separate system. And if we make it to the such that the president can be barraged by lawsuits taking place in elsewhere in the government, he is going to be forced out of office by a Congress of which he's not a part. And so the basic argument here is that we want for the most part, almost the entire thing, uh, the uh, impeachment remedy to be exclusive. And then after that, you can prosecute in state court. Impeachment is a political trial, but it's still a trial. And I think that that's what one has to respect. And in the case that you're giving, you can't wait for that to happen and so forth. And so there's an abject emergency. But I would be very, I'm, I would be very, very loath if, for example, he was still president of the United States and he put some of these documents home and somebody decided that they were going to prosecute him criminal if he was still in office. And, and note, I mean, the one person for whom there is no such immunity, Hillary Clinton basically committed very serious violations when she was secretary of state. And they didn't even want to go after her after she was out of office. Um, but I think, in effect, that since she's not the president, uh, once that thing became clearly known, she works at the pleasure of the president, and she should have been fired um, at that time if she's in the government engaging in that kind of sloppy activity. And Comey said the most ridiculous thing, which is, well, here's a woman 
who was absolutely seeped in the political world, she may not have known that it was legal to use this claptrack home server uh, to conduct our business. Two things about it. One is absurd on the question of fact. And secondly, it's absurd as a matter of law. Ignorance of the law in cases like that is no no excuse because then it allows people to make false pleas all the time. And so I would basically stick with the proposition I have. Uh, exceptions to judicial exceptions are always permissible, but you want to treat them very carefully. And it has to be a case where the conduct is so threatening to the dis continuation of the political order that you got to get this man out of office. And even Donald Trump doesn't do that. In fact, my own views for a whole variety of reasons, which I won't go into here, is that much of the actions that Joe Biden have taken have been much more serious breaches of duty than the things that Trump have done. And I'm not in favor of impeachment in those cases. Even, I mean, the question is, is he taking bribes or did he take them? One of the open questions in the Constitution is, can you impeach a current president for activities he did in an official capacity prior to assuming office? Very interesting question. So as you as you suggested earlier, Richard, I mean, all the signs now are that Donald Trump is going to be the Republican Party's presidential nominee. It's looked overdetermined for a while, but now we've got the vote in Iowa and New Hampshire. This just seems like even more of an inevitability. But there is there's still this prospect out there that he gets convicted in at least one of these cases before November. So I, I want to put aside the political dynamics, like whether the RNC would try to take him off the ballot at that point. But as a purely legal matter, John, in the, in the case that Trump is convicted in one of these cases, does it have any effect on his candidacy? Does it prevent him from standing for election? Does it prevent him from taking office? Legally, no. The Constitution only sets out uh, three requirements for yeah. being uh, a president. And so I don't see how uh, we could add a fourth requirement and that be you're not a felon, uh, you're not under indictment, you're not in jail. Uh, I don't I don't think anything prevents President Trump from now the uh, one thing that could happen, and this actually goes to what we're talking about at the beginning of the podcast about the 14th Amendment is, um, you know, one of the, I think, stronger arguments, uh, I, I think Richard's argument, the first one is the strongest one that that 14th Amendment disqualification provision just doesn't apply to the president, it doesn't mention the president at all. In fact, it mentions electors to president but and officers in the United States, but doesn't mention that applies to the presidency, either people who had the presidency or people who are running for the presidency. Um, but the second best argument is that that amendment hasn't been implemented by Congress or carried out by the federal government in any way. That's non-self-executing, as it were. But suppose that the special counsel wins the case against Trump. Then you might see uh, not just state courts, maybe even federal courts start to say, oh, well, there's our finding by the federal government, by a federal jury that Trump committed insurrection. Now, I think there's an important defect here, and I think the special counsel's really screwed up because uh, if this were the route to remove Trump from the ballot, he's made the mistake of not charging Trump with insurrection. <laughs> he's charged Trump with defrauding the US like he was some kind of government contractor of um, uh, congressional obstruction of a congressional proceeding which was added to the law actually against uh, corporations after uh, in the Sarbanes-Oxley law to prevent them from destroying documents that Congress wanted for investigations. And then somehow 
um, violating the constitutional rights of all voters. Um, I don't think any of those claims actually is going to work in the end. So even if Trump is convicted by the special counsel, none of those are actually a clear finding of insurrection. And so other than that, I think that Trump still remains on the ballot and still can become president legally. I think politically, I saw maybe Troy, you probably know the exact number. I thought I saw a poll out of New Hampshire saying something like a third or more of people who uh, of independence said, actually, I think it's more like more than half of independence said that if Trump is convicted of a felony, it would cause him to vote against him. John is probably right about that, but I'm going to take a slightly different tack. Uh, the first question is, suppose he's convicted of a felony and he wins the election. Uh, there's a clause which says the take care clause that the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. He can't do that from jail. And so I think, in effect, the constitutional imperative requires you to suspend the sentence until T is out of office. Indeed, when they had the civil litigation against uh, Clinton in the Jones case, I thought the correct answer was not the one that Justice Stevens gave, which led to the impeachment trial and everything else. The rule is you cannot even take in a civil case a deposition of a sitting president. What you do is you get to preserve documents, but not to read and to analyze them. You have to do that later. And you get rid of the statute of limitations. Uh, but for the interim, he simply serves as is. Because remember, it was the indiscretions in the discovery proceedings that led to the Monica Lewinsky case in the 1990s. 98, I guess it was, impeachment of the president of the United States. So I think you just have to shut this whole thing down and shut it down completely under these circumstances. And then there's also the following question. This is a judgment from the Pope. Well, if he's convicted of a felony, well, clearly it's going to go differently. Well, uh, suppose the felon he's convicted of is in the D.C. of Columbia with Judge Chutkin, and it's a jury case, and everybody thinks that the jury has run wild, that she's allowed unfavorable rulings to take place, that she has a long history of giving heavy sentence against J6 and so forth, J6 protesters and so forth, and that there's a sure appeal, and the commentators come out and say, you know, we think this was a political witch hunt. It's not going to change the vote. That's not going to change the vote. If they think it's absolutely apple pie on order and the evidence shows that, it could well change the vote. Uh, but what I'm worried about is running a hearing like this and you get an influence and it's a basically a suspect trial. And my view, since these indictments are suspect in many ways, these trials will be suspect, that would create an incredible amount of turmoil because it will not be as clear as the vote that you see when the question just puts the conviction of felony there and doesn't give it any kind of investment. So I also believe in all of these cases, just postpone everything. I think the political issue is so much more important than the legal issue that we do not want all of these things to contaminate one way or another. And the irony to date is that it is basically given Trump an advantage because these things are so blatantly partisan. Mr. Bragg has no business taking what would normally be a $200 fine for some uh, paper errors and manufacturing 23 or whatever the number is, distinct um, offenses, and now is trying to get 38 years in jail uh, for what is a trivial offense. Shame on him is the only thing that one can say. But he ran on the grounds that I'm your get Trump man. And that itself is enough to say that what you really want out of prosecutors, which is an independent appraisal, independent of their own political preferences, is something that did not happen and could not happen so long as that man remains in office. Final question that I'll ask the two of you about. Um, there is a fear going around 
but a second term Donald Trump would push the limits of executive power like we've never seen before, or that he'll have a, a dictatorial bent. And the argument here is that there were all these officials surrounding him in the first term who worked to curb his worst instincts and exploited the fact that he didn't really understand the way that a lot of the mechanisms of government work and that they won't be around this time. And that Trump is specifically looking for people now whose loyalties are to him rather than to the Constitution. So there was this story, for example, that came out a little while ago, I think it was a New York Times story, saying that they want MAGA lawyers in the next term, whatever those are, rather than Federalist Society lawyers, because Federalist Society lawyers would just just tell Trump no all the time, which is kind of a precious complaint because Federalist Society lawyers were put on this planet to say no. Uh, John, I'll start with you. How seriously do you take this anxiety? Are you worried that a reelected Trump would have a, a dictatorial bent? I've got no doubt that the people who are working on, uh, who have been working on, you can read about it in the press, people have been working on uh, staffing any new Trump administration, want a different kind of lawyer than the ones they had in the first term. Um uh, incredibly to me, they think Bill Barr was a bad attorney general, or they think Pat Cipollone or Don McGahn were bad White House counsels. Uh, on the other hand, I think uh, judging from what I've seen about a lot of the legal papers that have been introduced for President Trump in the defense of the of these cases, there are very few MAGA lawyers out there who are really competent <laughs> at doing their jobs. I've seen incredibly bad lawyering from allegedly loyal uh, MAGA Trump lawyers. So if Trump wants to have a dysfunctional administration that achieves nothing, then the best thing he could do would be to get rid of all federal society lawyers and only hire based on loyalty. But then I think the larger point is, and look, I think this is true of the Biden administration too. I think Biden has pressed executive power farther in many ways than Trump did when he was in office. For example, like with his student loan uh, forgiveness program, which would have spent something what, like a trillion dollars in federal funds without any appropriation from Congress. But I think we have a system that uh, prevents that. I think we have a system where you, uh, you need executive branch officers, not just political appointees, but also civil service to believe that what they're doing is legal. And if they don't, they can resign. Um, you have a court system that's there to prevent the executive branch from getting out of control. I think the only area where you have the most chance of uh, of a president um, engaging in abuse of power uh, would be foreign affairs, just because in foreign affairs, the courts are usually reluctant to get involved, and you have less uh, checks and balances because Congress is not performing a kind of daily oversight that it does over the administrative state. Um, but there, I'm like, how much worse could our foreign policy get right now? And we have uh, President Biden, who's uh, you know conducting a foreign policy, I think pretty much uh, free of most checks other than Congress's funding authority, which I'm sure he wishes he's ha he had. And it's been a disaster. So I wouldn't be so uh, I wouldn't be so reluctant to see a President Trump who fully exercised his executive powers <sighs> to change course in foreign policy. And I think in domestic policies, there's just so much restraint on what a president can do alone uh, that I don't think all these I don't I just don't think these fears are justified. 
I think it's even worse than that. I think it's just outright fear-mongering put by a bunch of Democrats, uh, particularly from the New York Times, for whom all things Trump are evil, for all things on the right wing are evil, and perfect virtue on their own side. Um, I give them about as much credibility as I do to Hamas on talking about casualties in the current conflagration in the Middle East. Talking about lawless behavior, I'm, I am actually suing uh, Joe Biden for lawless behavior. I'm not sure it would be counted as a crime or misdemeanor, but I'm going to give a comparison between him and Trump. Trump talks a terrible game in many cases, but one of the issues that you see is there are people who receive statutory terms in office appointed by the prior president who continue to operate in the new administration. Sometimes they're in, in very sensitive positions where they can be fired, sometimes sensitive positions where they cannot be fired. Trump never fired, for example, the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Act, uh, who was a Democrat when he took office. But Mr. Biden, who has announced that he's the most pro-union president in the United States, uh, he goes and he simply takes the Trump appointment as general counsel and fires that person and puts somebody else in his place. It's legal for that particular office. These are at-will employees no matter what the contract says on duration. That's fine. But it's absolutely a breaking of a social norm when he starts to do this. And it's something that you have to remember. The Democratic charge against Trump has always been, this guy doesn't understand the traditions and the organizations of various offices, so he's not fit to run the situation. Biden does the same thing. And they said, isn't it wonderful how the president takes charge of the situation? Uh, the other hand, there are a series of advice. Wait, wait, Richard, can I point out he didn't just follow on Richard's point? There are two other people he didn't fire who destroyed his presidency. He didn't fire Robert Mueller, and he didn't yes. fire Dr. Fauci. Yes, both of whom he should have. I mean, as somebody said about Mueller towards the end of it, I know he didn't write the report, but it's pretty clear he never read it either. And Fauci from the beginning has always been the worst possible administrator. Right now, today, there's another one of these revelations that has to be checked that the CDC did not want to talk about the side effects of the vaccines, including myocarditis, because they were afraid they would panic the public. Um, and this is okay. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. I don't want to get into a debate about the vaccine. <laughs> I, 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 I don't Stop do I, We're going to be banned by Google again. We're going to be banned by Google again. But I mean, but I want to go back to the point. Uh, there are a whole series of advisory committees that have no official duties except to advise. They're supposed to be independent. They have three-year terms if appointed by the president. Every president before Biden respected the term of somebody appointed by his predecessor, even if he came from a different party. Biden comes into office and he just removes a lot of them, completely illegally, claiming that they are federal employees when, in fact, they have no duties that are subject to the president. They're on a commission that has appointed Biden a combination of the president, the chief of the Senate, and the Speaker of the House, so they can't be executive officers under Buckley. He just got rid of them all and issued the most preposterous statements about it. This is just flat illegality that the man is engaged in, and the tragedy is the district court judge, a Trump appointee, issued one of the worst opinions in the history of Western civilization, i.e., a bad opinion, um, in which he sort of soft up all of these difficulties and say that these were within the presidential power. This this is not the case. So when one's talking about Biden, this is a man who I think is lawless. Then you look at what he does through the attorney general. The answer is to slow walk everything that turns out to be a Benson. And then you start looking at the relationship with Hunter. The whole, whole situation there is you have a man here who's under suspicion for all sorts of stuff. And then what they do is they say, he's in a second term. We think he's going to be a terrible man 
proof of that? Nothing. You then look at the Republican side, and it seems to what I'm watching is Trump is reaching out to the people who were against him in the primaries and trying to get their support so that everybody except Nikki Haley testified and campaigned for him, not testified, campaigned for him in New Hampshire. And so I, I just think that this is really scurrilous sort of stuff. I regard Joe Biden as probably the worst and most dishonest president in the history of the United States. And I don't want him playing the virtue card and going unchallenged when he does it. Before I move you guys onto the court, I, I do want to get you to briefly weigh in on another probably slightly more conventional question about executive power. But it gets to the topic that John raised earlier about President Biden's foreign policy. So Mike Lee and Tim Kaine were amongst a group of senators who sent a letter to the White House concerned about President Biden's war making powers as regards these strikes on the, the Houthi forces in Yemen who are attacking shipping traffic in the Red Sea. I would just read you briefly uh, the relevant part of that letter. Directing military action to defend U.S. personnel and military assets from attacks and imminent attacks is clearly within the boundaries of presidential power. It could also be argued that directing military action to defend U.S. commercial shipping is within this power. However, most vessels transiting through the Red Sea are not U.S. ships, which raises questions about the extent to which these authorities can be exercised. We support smart steps to defend U.S. personnel and assets, hold the Houthis accountable for their actions, and deter additional attacks. We further believe Congress must carefully deliberate before authorizing offensive military action. So the question, John, and th this is one you spent a lot of time on, where are the boundaries in this case between military actions that President Biden can take unilaterally and where he'd need congressional approval? First, years and years I've spent studying this, and this is another one where I have not succeeded in getting Richard to change his libertarian mind. But you haven't heard what I had to say, John. I'm I know in what you're going to say. Now. <laughs> God, so Richard, you think you were like wearing a Hawaiian shirt and sitting in the parking lot of In-N-Out Burger? Yes, it's <laughs> not that there are not that there are not that there are any open in Oakland anymore. <laughs> As you saw, this can I can I just uh, this is another sad day for the Bay Area is that In and Out Burger closed its first franchise ever. And they're so successful they've never had to close one before, and they had to close one the one that's near Oakland Airport because of the crime. Yeah, that, that I mean that's just incredible. So anyway, um, there's a lot of different things going. First, I just wanted to point out Biden himself is being a hypocrite because I, I wrote a piece a few years ago about how Biden was one of the most anti-presidential war powers senators attacked you know reagan ford bush you go on and on attack them all for waging unconstitutional wars and uh now as president he hasn't gone to congress to act for any authority uh second point is uh what's going on with the houthis is not covered by the authorization to use military force that were yeah. passed back in you know the ones that I participated in back in 2001, 2001 2002 to cover 9/11 or to cover um, the invasion of Iraq, but I think there's two grounds on which uh, Biden can claim authority to use force here without Congress. I think one is self-defense. So I don't think people believe. I don't think, and I don't think it's correct if people believe that. Oh, even in cases of self-defense, you have to get congressional permission. So this is a case where, right, the Houthis are shooting at American vessels and American Navy vessels. 
So I think that uh, Biden certainly has the right as commander in chief to order the U.S. military to defend itself. Now, there's going to be uh, critics who say, well, they're defending themselves because President Biden moved the ships right there into a war zone. Oh. You could have a fine argument about that. But I don't think that the declare war clause in the Constitution requires president to get permission there. Then the second point, uh, and I think this one causes trouble for libertarians like Richard, because if there was a big hero for libertarians, it's Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson engaged in a war with pirates. Why I, I think these Houthis are really like pirates. Of yeah. Yes. Exactly. I, you know, I, it's so much better when the Marines sing it because they change the, <laughs> the tone of the song, Richard. You just sang it a monotone. I did because, <laughs> but, John, uh, <laughs> well, I don't want to the reason why, the No, 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 no. The reason why Shores of Tripoli are in the Marine Corps anthem is because they fought back in the same region before against the Barbary pirates who were attacking American shipping. And Thomas Jefferson sent them there, to sent the Navy there and the Marines there to fight without any congressional authorization because he was fighting pirates. And I don't know if presidents need authority to use force against pirates, pirates who are a threat to all mankind and are just a burden on our commerce. I agree with John. Now, let me give my position. Um, I think this is one of the weakest letters I've ever read in my life. Uh, John is clearly right about the fact that you don't need to get an authorization of war to basically shoot back at Pearl Harbor. Um, you shoot back and get anything you want later. It's also the case, as John has pointed out, the congressional, the current practice seems to be that no war is ever declared. I think the last declared war was probably what? Uh, Second World War, John? They didn't declare a Korean War. These were all police actions and so No, forth. World War II is the last declaration. That's, that's what I said. So, I mean, that's a long time ago. And so, there's obviously a sense that technology has inverted the order. It's too slow and too ponderous to do this when the enemy is 10 feet away as opposed to 3,000 thousand miles away. Uh, and also the attack on the American ships and the idea that somehow or other, uh, if we're trying to open up a channel so ships of other nations could go through, that we can't do that. No, my view about this is actually slight difference. I am not a libertarian dove. I'm a libertarian hawk. I've always believed in strong self-defense for the United States. I've always believed in Pax Americana. So I'm now going to quote my late uncle Albert and what he <laughs> told me when I was 10 years old. He said, and he was in the Air Force in World War II, he said, you cannot win a war with people entrenched on the ground unless you send in the Marines, meaning bombing will not be able to stop this. And I think, in effect, so long as the threat exists, you should send with the, everybody else in there and just take over the land. Um, I, I see absolutely no reason. Uh, the Saudis and so forth are all worried about this. I would give them a dispensation. They don't have to join in. But this is a dangerous cancer to everybody. And and it's not just the ships that are attacked. No American ships now can go through that area without extra insurance costs and so forth. And I think you have to defend them. So, so long as they started the shooting war, I think it's utterly unambiguous. And, and, and so on this issue, I'm very much with John, and I'm very much against the tepid proposal here. Uh, speaking about other great presidential acts, uh, uh, Barack Obama on the, the red line that can't be crossed is yet another illustration of how he managed to basically give up a 
American influence in the Middle East. I think, in effect, that Biden is uh, basically he's walking back everything that he said with respect to the Middle East. Um, I appreciated him sending the ships there in the early days. I think it was a genuine help to Israel in stopping the war. Since that time, I, I think he's basically a kind of a silly, equivocating guy who's worried as much about his left wing as he is about the political issues in question. And remember, this is the man who claimed victory when he pulled everybody out of Afghanistan in order to stop bloodshed, which in fact no American had been killed for several years beforehand. His foreign policy weakness in Afghanistan led to everything in some sense that followed because people said, here is a chump who is president of the United States and he has taken the entire military out of commission. If he's doing it in the case where he's already won, he's not going to do what we need him to do, what we fear he's do anywhere else. And so you start seeing invasions and threats everywhere around the world. The man is an utterly incompetent president of the United States on this, on everything else. In domestic areas, they're checks. But as John pointed out, it's not just uh, the fact that president has a lot of constitutional authority. It's that when expedition is the issue, it's very difficult to get institutional checks against an incompetent president in foreign affairs, more easy to do it in domestic affairs. And so the reason at this point that he has to leave the office, and I hope the Democrats will refuse to nominate him for whatever reason they could gin up, is that he's not competent to lead the American position overseas at this particular time. Uh, who knows is running the government, but this man has trouble reading a teleprompter. He certainly doesn't have the ability to command major strategies about foreign affairs. I'm going to move you guys over to the Supreme Court in the limited time we have left because we've got this major decision brewing that's going to be watched very closely, at least by a certain kind of conservative. This is this direct attack on Chevron deference, the, the, the doctrine that the court should defer to an agency's reasonable interpretation of a statute that's ambiguous. And the specific case here, as is often the case, seems somewhat prosaic in its details. It's about fishing outfits that have to bear the cost of the government observers on their boats. But the implications here are potentially very important. This is a white whale for a lot of people who worry about the administrative state. But actually, before we get into the implications, uh, can we step back and look at the history here a little bit? So the original Chevron decision was handed down in 1984. And what a lot of the reporting suggests, I don't know to what extent this is true, but is that it didn't necessarily set off alarm bells at the time so what what was the status quo ante or richard what did the landscape look like with regard to the administrative state before this decision before 19 it, it was bifurcated there were many divisions for example involving fda authority in which there was excessive deference given in ways that i thought made no sense so that you uh, would treat a medical device as if it were a drug when they're completely different regimes but what had happened immediately before chevron was that the court of appeals for the district of columbia in an opinion written by ruth Bader ginsburg said look we look at this kind of statute and what we see is the fact that what they're trying to use in this particular case is a bubble concept. And we don't think that those should be allowed in what they call non-attainment areas. People are out of whack with the system. And so she said, I believe this, and therefore you strike it down. And so Chevron at that time was a conservative decision because it said the administration in power can make its judgment that differs with one of the court, and we're not going to strike these things down on wholly rhapsodic figures. Uh, it was the right outcome. I thought it was the wrong theory, because if you looked at the statute and tried to figure out what these various rules are for single sources and so forth, they all strong very favorably in favor of the government on the merits. 
because the simplest way to put the point is you get three or four smokestacks in close proximity. And every time you run a factory, you want to sort of rebalance the factory and put more emissions out of this one rather than that one and so forth. And what happens is if each smokestack is a separate facility, you have to get a permit in order to change this. And the ultimate sort of legal sense is why would we want to block somebody to take two smokestacks or three smokestacks within 100 yards of each other and say you got to get a permit to shift it around. It's so much more efficient so long as the aggregate output is roughly the same to let them do what they want. And so all the free marketeer types like myself said you don't want to ever get involved in this. Uh, In order to have discrete forces, they have to be far enough away from one another so that the shift in the output will have different effects on what's going on. So we said do this. All of the strong pro-environmentalist people wanted to basically uh, hamstring all the ways in which these were done. And so Chevron allowed them to escape that this time around. Then when you start going further and further forward, Chevron takes on a different view. Oh, uh, you have the powers over the navigable waters of the United States. Well, those include land that's 600 feet from a navigable waters under Chevron deference. If something may leave the land and make it into the water, the government could regulate it under dredge and fill permit. So within a very short time, uh, maybe two or three years, Chevron became this absolutely free-floating thing. And I'll let George, John explain a very simple reason why it is that you think that you could delegate the appropriations power uh, to an agency that is in charge of fishing boats is something which you don't want to allow happen under Chevron. Right, John? I'm not sure what you're asking me. That was so long. <laughs> Well, oh, you wait. fell asleep. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I just the you, you had like five things you're asking. Me. Well, that, well, let, let me let, let me let me ladle one extra one on, John, and then you can sit through it and, and, and take take what you take what you want. So, the oral arguments in this case happened last week. Most observers seem to think that Chevron is going down. Those were the signals that were coming from the bench, uh, but the contrary voices are sort of interesting. So, J- Justice Kagan made the argument that you don't want to neuter the expertise that lives inside the executive branch. She gave the example of AI. Most members of Congress don't have the technical knowledge to deal with an issue like that. So you want, in her telling, to defer to an agency of people who are literate on the matter. Now, maybe if Chevron goes away, that's just a matter of writing statutes differently. But I I am curious about the bigger question that suggests, which is it seems impossible for Congress to cover every potential issue that's going to face an executive branch department or agency via statute, which means you probably want some discretion embedded in these agencies. So uh, what what are your thoughts on where and how we draw those lines? It's interesting. I think uh, Kagan's argument, though, is the justification for the entire administrative state. I mean, the administrative right. state will always right. say that uh, the reason to defer to us is that we have the technical experts and Congress doesn't have the time or knowledge. So I don't find her defense, even on AI of the Chevron regime, really responsive to the claim that this is a, right. This is an abdication by the judiciary of its fundamental role of interpreting the law. Uh, and it's even required, arguably, under the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, I think the harder problem that um, was not so well answered in the oral argument, I'd say, and is really the thing that will probably trouble people like uh, the Chief Justice and Kavanaugh and maybe Barrett, is what do you uh, you replace Chevron with? Uh, 
I mean, do you have a complete, what Richard was calling a de novo standard where a court just looks at everything afresh and gives no um, deference to what the agencies think at all? What do you do when it's clear Congress delegated the authority once the agencies to make these decisions? So when the Clean Air Act says just tells the federal agencies to make the air clean, can we can the courts really say, oh, we can tell what Congress really meant by keep the air clean? Wasn't that really just a political way of transferring the power to the agencies? And then are the courts really going to prevent Congress from transferring that power to the agencies, which brings up this other issue we've talked about before, the non-delegation doctrine, which would probably be the next set of cases that will come up if Chevron's overturned. But I think that's the hard thing because uh, the courts, I think, think uh, believe that the Chevron deference was overdone. But at the same time, they don't want to make all those policy decisions too. And they don't. I don't think the federal courts want to sit there and replace uh, the decisions of the administrative state, which number in the hundreds of thousands a year with their own decisions. I mean, they, they would force the courts into this kind of policymaking role that they've always said they've wanted to avoid. It's hard to tell what happened before Chevron because before Chevron, Chevron's, I think, 1984, 1983, the administrative state had not really gotten going in the great vast expanse of its powers that it wields today. So uh, that it had back then, and even before Chevron, there was still a lot of fighting in the lower courts to figure out how courts should actually examine agency decisions. And uh, I'm not sure that the courts before had a really uniform view that was, and, and I'm not sure they had one that was correct. So I think that's the real challenge that conservatives face here. Okay. What do you replace Chevron with that can work, that doesn't get the courts involved in making just pure policy decisions? Uh, and then also, you know, it's consistent with, I think, a judicial restraint approach to federal power. John, I have an answer to that. That, um, and this is very different. I think. Well, argument- well, can I just say at the outset, Richard, your answer can't be let Richard Epstein do all the reviewing. <laughs> no, that no, that is my answer. I think you. Could- <laughs> no, I mean, I-, I will only do half of it, and I'll leave the other half to you. Uh, no, it's a different answer at all. The question is, what kinds of questions are involved? I think the problem about pure questions of law is the argument about expertise is largely a phony. Uh, That what happens is you look at the way these agencies are constituted. They are constituted along political lines. So you get three Democrats and two Republicans, either by custom or by statute, depending on which government power. Uh, There is no reason whatsoever when people are appointed for political purposes that on questions of law, we should trust their judgment. If these guys know what they're saying, and usually they don't, they could just make legal arguments that are persuasive on their merits, just as they do in cases where there's no administrative agencies involved and the government has a very clear interest in the case. They don't come in with deference and so forth. But these are pure questions of law. There are also other kinds of questions. And so what you have to do to get this thing right is to look Look back at the earlier case, State Farm Insurance, where the question turns out to be uh, when you are dealing with various kinds of regulations, whether it's a technical trade-off one way or another, what kind of review do you start to make of what's going on? And these are questions like, when do you put airbags in? And it's obviously a question that no court can answer for itself, you would have thought. And then you read the opinion from Justice White in that case, and you say, what is he doing here anyhow? There was a huge debate as to whether or not the cost of an earlier implementation was worth 
uh, the benefits of an early implantation were worth its cost. And there were all sorts of arguments made everywhere about this. And what he says is, we have only an narrow authority to review these kinds of questions, and then announces in the next breath that he believes that a hard look is appropriate. Well, a hard look is anything but a deferential approach. And then he went through all the stuff there and he said, well, they just didn't consider the right things. There's things they admitted they should have counted and things they should counted they should have admitted. That's as intrusive as it could be. Uh, so if you go back and you want to look at those decisions, the appropriate standard with respect to ultimate findings on fact as to whether or not uh, the airbags are needed is not a de novo question. And the correct answer is so long as they have substantial evidence, at the very least, then they're going to win, which is a much more deferential standard as it should be. And the same when it comes to evidentiary facts, you know, did this airbag function or not function and so forth? And then you use the clearly administrative, a clearly erroneous standard. The, and I wrote in my book about the modern administrator, I said, I said the easiest way to think about that is to assume that the administrative agency is a trial court and it gets absolute deference on fact kinds of questions, except in rare cases, much deference on does X amount to Y and no deference on de novo review. So what you do is you don't say everything coming out of the administrative agency is going to be deferential. Uh, you do it the otherwise, and what they really have to do is to review State Farm because they butchered it afterwards. It turns out the operative rule in State Farm is if the government decides to intervene, the review is highly deferential. If the government decides not to interview, you get scrutiny against the private party. And that kind of asymmetry has dogged administrative state uh, for the last 40 odd years. And so the real answer to the question, John, I think is not to worry about what you do with de novo review on pure questions of law. It's the question of how you assemble the entire system and I think the next line of attack ought to be somebody has to take a real look at State Farm and what it is that we mean by the hard look doctrine and the deference that's associated with that. There's huge tension in these cases and it has a single direction, namely in favor of the government. Exit question, because John brought this up right before we were starting. The Washington Post reporting today that signing bonuses at law firms for Supreme Court clerks have reached a new high half a million dollars, which suggests an obvious question. Why didn't I go to law school? Um, they, 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 <laughs> oh, there's yes, lots yeah. of reasons. Say, for well, that. competence and ability are probably the first two. Uh, no, are they? Here's the here's the question. Uh, are they worth it? Why do they command this premium on the job market? Jump ball, whichever one of you wants it. I'll start. Uh, they command it because they're thought to have some inside information as to how these guys think. And even if they can't reveal anything about particular discussions, and they don't, uh, it is thought that this is a huge kind of advantage in planning cases and so forth. I don't know how much of a ban there is before appearing before the Supreme Court when you come out of a clerkship, but nothing stops you from talking. That's the first thing. The second thing you have to ask is, what does that number mean? Is that bonus paid at the front so that if you leave after six months, you keep it? I suggest not. My guess is you probably have to earn it out over several years if somebody has to tell you that. And so change the number a little bit and say, if you stay with us, you will get a bonus of 50000 a year for each of 10 years or 100000 for five years. And it sounds best. Do you remember the huge contract that was given to that great Japanese superstar? No, uh, the superstar who moved from to the Dodgers from Shohei the Angels, Otani. right? Yeah. Whatever. 
Yeah, it's not seven times. Remember, his contract was $900 million, right? Whatever it was. You look at the fine print, he gets $2 million a year for the next 10 years, and everything is backloaded. And right. so that if you take its present value, it's probably about a quarter or a third of what that number is. And so a, a full number is it's one of the worst devices all the time in fundraising. I got a gift for this hospital of $30 million, but it's over 10 years. And then when nobody's looking, what they do is they say, well, let's modify it. You give us up front $18 million and we'll let you out of the other 12. And it's a, it's a dance. I mean, it's done literally that way to impress people that you've got all that money. And then what happens is you go down to a more manageable sum. And so I suspect that if you're doing the reporting, what you have to do is to read the fine print. John, you're former Supreme Court clerk. I have never been on your private plane. What went wrong? <laughs> this was so I, I again blame uh past john for his stupid <laughs> mistakes and being uh yeah and i blame newt gingrich and this is why i blame <laughs> newt gingrich so when i was clerking <laughs> newt gingrich and the contract with america took a majority in the house for the first time since the eisenhower administration right so it was uh 40 years and so in the in the rush of my foolish excitement i signed up to be a counsel for the senate judiciary committee right out of clerking for the supreme court wow. and turned down the opportunity to work at a law firm so i'm still waiting for newt to pay me back for that no what john is you have i was so overcome <laughs> i was so overcome with enthusiasm evil enthusiasm and i i wish i could say i was so rich the five hundred thousand dollars didn't matter but no that would be untrue of course it's not so, 500 present value i suspect and moreover <laughs> than that john the, when you were the, there they probably the number well, was in you know ten thousand well, dollars a year no i think I, it was i think it was when i was there it was more like a hundred about 125 maybe well then it's here's, going up here's now a, that's too high because that, the inflation no, would take was, that away. No, but no, it's a lot of, it, was. it was a lot of money what look the richard, 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 look, richard i was <laughs> i was there that that's what it was i mean okay, you're telling you, me something <laughs> the, you're telling me the facts i know to be wrong no, 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 <laughs> again as usual so, no but i mean at that time that's what about what it was the thing was the thing is that um i think there's another there's several other factors that might make it uh, worthwhile also to to uh provide some more detail i believe you get the whole um bonus in the first year uh that wow. you work at that law firm and that you basically have an obligation to stay for a year but i think there are people who've left after one year and kept the entire bonus wow that's you they know, should just restructure understood. these deals they'll restructure <laughs> the deals i mean that's this the is, issue this is this is interesting richard arguing for the uh, law firm side uh, always and on the, the side of management year old associate side <laughs> no <I laughs> exactly mean, that's true I mean, let me let, let, richard okay. one more one more other so uh, other fact that you asked about is uh i'm pretty sure the bar on clerks appearing before the supreme court again is two years so you can't sign a brief or make an, an appearance for the court for up to two i think it's two years now after you've clerked but um obviously one thing that um went unmentioned is that supreme court clerks make very good appellate argument uh, appellate counsel in the lower courts Points. because the maybe the most important thing a law law clerk does at the supreme court is they manage what's called the cert pool which is all the i think there's what six thousand up to ten thousand petitions a year for review from the lower courts or from the state supreme courts and it's really the clerks who filter through all those and try to identify 
what's a good case for the Supreme Court to take. So two things come out. There's That's a good skill set for two reasons. One is, gives you a good idea what cases the Supreme Court is going to be interested in taking. But it also means you read hundreds and hundreds of lower court opinions. And so you have a really good sense, in a way a lot of people don't, of what's going on at the lower federal courts and how to make good arguments at the lower federal courts and what are uh, bad judges and good judges and how the lower court judges think. And I think that's a really good insight that goes unmentioned this idea in these articles, which all make it sound like, um, as Richard was suggesting, you're hiring Supreme Court clerks to get insight into how the justices think. I don't really think that's worth five hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> Frankly, I mean, I, I think I mean, I think they could just read the Supreme Court justices' opinions, and they'll have a pretty good idea of no, how they think. No, I don't think. I, my view is. Let's suppose you have a billion-dollar case, and you have this kid out there, and he could change the odds by 1% in that case in your favor, right? Well, you do the math, and it's $100,000 or more. The other thing is, I will mention, in terms of this situation, this arises all the time in private industry. We want you to get an MBA, and we'll pay for it. But what they do is they basically say, you pay the tuition, and for every year that you pay, stay, we will pay you back 20% of what you did. And they do that because they're covenants not to compete that are very difficult to enforce. And this is an informal way of doing much the same thing in a perfectly legitimate fashion. Uh, and I've, if the numbers were high and the defection rate was great, I would expect to see that the practice would change. And it would change pretty much across the board. It may well be that there are stories of people leaving after a year. But if there are stories of one in 100, nobody's going to change the basic rule. Uh, there'll be social sanctions that will be brought. But if it becomes routine, uh, then my view is that the contracts themselves will change. And so next time, what we have to do is begin the show with a discussion of why did New York Mayor Kathy Hochul ban a bill at the House did uh, banning covenants not to compete for all employees within the state. I mean, it's a very important topic, and John knows everything. And in the business, we call that a tease. We are at, uh, we're, we're actually beyond at the end of the hour, and I'm sure that West Coast Richard probably has a drum circle to get to. So I want to thank the both of you, our producer, Scott Amrogat, <laughs> and, uh, of course, our listeners. Remember to do us a favor and write the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. Yes. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.